Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Why was six scared of seven? Why? Because seven, eight, nine. Oh. It's an old one. It's a classic. It's a chestnut. It's so stupid. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just get a joke from writer, actor, and believe it or not, comedian Margaret Cho. <laughs> That'll break the ice. Yeah. Later, she'll answer your etiquette questions. Plus, lifelong yacht rocker and former Doobie brother Michael McDonald stops by with the Dinner Party playlist. You will not be surprised to learn it's smooth. Mm. Also coming up, we chat with Yancey Ford, director of the new documentary Strong Island. We capture the essence of our own Michelle Philippi in the form of a cocktail. And Brendan travels deep into Brooklyn to answer the question, Was ist Quas? Yeah, but first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Trump is going to Florida to inspect relief efforts following Hurricane Irma. They've agreed to a framework that would extend DACA's protections. Senator Bernie Sanders announcing a plan he calls Medicare for All. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with our friend Danielle Henderson. She's a writer on the forthcoming Netflix series Maniac, directed by Carrie Fukunaga. Danielle, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? How about a DNA result story with positive results? <laughs> Okay. okay. Something new to both of you. All right. <laughs> Whoa. Wait, are you my mother? That's a way to begin this dinner party conversation. <laughs> Got to get the sick burns where you can get Questioning them. Questioning our lineage. Um, what are you talking about? There uh, was a scientist, a group of Swedish scientists, who discovered that a Viking warrior thought to be a man for centuries uh, has now been revealed to have been a woman. Oh, so they had they had lady warriors in Viking town. They I don't think you called them warriors. lady warriors, right? Not based on the, the weapons she was buried with. I wouldn't call her lady <laughs> well, warrior. Yeah, tell us, how do, they, so how do they know that this is a warrior and why did they make the mistake? The remains were unearthed in the 1880s and she was buried with a ton of garb and shields and battle axes and swords and things that were indicative that she was a man. So, so mm. basically prehistoric tribes like this were maybe a little more progressive than we thought? It's possible. It's possible. But before we make any assumptions, the scientist who discovered this via DNA noted that she was buried with two horses outside of her chamber. Okay. They found Vikings buried with their horses in the past. Uh, it was a clear signal that somebody was, in fact, a warrior. The difference here is that usually they're buried with two stallions. This lady was buried with a stallion and a mare. Mm, so they, they weren't so progressive that they were gender blind. Like. They're kind mm. of giving us little hints, like a little little gender puzzle to figure out mm-hmm. in 2017. Mm. And now you know how I want to be buried. With horses? <laughs> with zombie apocalypse man I gotta be ready (laughs) Danielle Henderson thanks for the small talk thanks guys and now time for cocktails this is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it and today we're marking the historic end of an era that's right for years our friend Michelle Philippi has been our show's voice of history telling you all about these wonderful tales from the past we dig up But alas, she is leaving public radio to pursue Mm. her writing and acting career. Big win for the arts, big loss for us. Huge. Yeah. And we wanted to have her on for a final goodbye. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Oh, it's a bittersweet moment, Michelle. But look, uh, this is the History with Booze segment, so we have two important questions. First, when you are making drinks at home, what's your favorite spirit? You know, Rico, I'm pretty consistent. I like vodka. Vodka works. 
<laughs> and why vodka? Well, it's it's clear, you know, so it's uh, it looks pretty. It goes really well with olives. I love a good dirty martini. And you know, when I'm on a diet, there's nothing like a vodka soda to you know keep me on my weight loss plan. You hardly need that. <laughs> Um, and question two, what's your favorite historical tale that you've read on our show? Oh, shows? my God. There are so many. I mean, I think probably Wrong Way Corrigan because we did that one live a couple of times. And so that would probably be my favorite because it really lives in my head. But here's the problem. If I'm remembering correctly, the Corrigan cocktail was a whiskey cocktail, not uh, vodka. No. Well, I didn't have to drink it. I just had to tell it. <laughs> Right? Uh, All right. Look, what we're going to do is roll some tape of you telling that story live, and then we'll have a bartender cook up a vodka drink for you. Okay? Any last words for our listeners, Michelle? I've enjoyed saying things into your ears all of these years. And i got to say, it's been a lot of fun. You guys have been a lot of fun. Michelle Philippi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. In 1938, Americans suffered from a great depression, till Douglas Corrigan flew on the scene. Born in Texas, he grew up in LA and started his career as an airplane mechanic in San Diego. He actually helped assemble the wings on Charles Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis, the plane that made the first ever transatlantic flight, New York to Europe. Corrigan dreamed about making that flight himself one day, but unlike Lindbergh, he didn't have any fancy investors or really much money at all. So in California, he bought a junky decade-old monoplane for 310 bucks and modified it himself for transatlantic travel. He called it sunshine. Safety regulators called it a death trap. The door was held on with bailing wire. Extra fuel tanks took up so much room he had to hunch with his knees cramped up to fit in the cockpit, and the tanks blocked the windows so he couldn't even see the ground while landing. A journalist who saw the plane later wrote, quote, he built it, or rebuilt it, practically as a boy would build a scooter out of a soapbox or a pair of old roller skates. Even after Corrigan flew Sunshine cross-country to Brooklyn in July 1938, officials wouldn't let him take the plane over the ocean to Europe. Dejected, he said he'd fly back west to California the next day. He flew all right, but the folks in Brooklyn were surprised when he headed east and kept going. 28 hours later, Corrigan landed in Dublin, Ireland. Until the day he died, he swore his compass failed and it was really foggy and he just got lost. His first words to Dublin's airport workers, quote, I just got in from New York. Where am I? Officials didn't buy Corrigan's excuse. They suspended his license for two weeks, which is how long it took him to ride a steamship back to the USA. And for word to spread about the guy who flew a homemade jalopy over the sea. 
He was greeted in New York with a ticker tape parade bigger than the one for Charles Lindbergh. A million cheering fans. Wrong way Corrigan, everyone called him. Although they were pretty sure he knew exactly where he was going. Uh, I just hope that if I make any more mistakes, they'll turn out as successful as this one. <laughs> I'm Michelle Philippi. Thanks, everybody. Michelle Philippi presenting the history of Wrong Way Corrigan live at the Moss Theater in Santa Monica, California, way back in 2014. And now for a drink to honor Michelle, who we miss already. Uh, we are on the line with one of our favorite L.A. cocktail masters, Carrie Ha. She is the bar manager at Alcove Big Bar in Los Angeles. Carrie, what drink did Michelle inspire you to make? Well, this is going to be really fun because I know a few things about Michelle. And I know that she is kind of this avid gardener and that she oh, yeah. likes to especially grow tomatoes and eat them as well. So that <laughs> was does. kind of the basis for her cocktail. All right, tomatoes. Yeah, I definitely wanted to use a vodka because I know she's quite fond of vodka. That's essential. So wait, are we are we looking at a uh, a Bloody Mary then? No, not a Bloody Mary. So get this. Okay. It's a martini style cocktail. All right. It has the Belvedere Intense vodka, a little bit of Fino Sherry, and dry vermouth, mm-hmm. and these special olive brine bitters, which are Ooh. olives soaked in celery bitters. Because she likes a dirty martini. Yeah, that's what I understand. So I thought that would be pretty appropriate, but it won't be an actual dirty martini, you know, because it's yes. only using the bitters. Because no self-respecting bartender wants to make a dirty martini, <laughs> is my understanding. That is not true. That's not true at all. I love dirty martinis. I love drinking them. I love making them. And I think I make the best one, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> right, well, We're talking about Michelle. <laughs> so the very cool part is I took tomatoes and I made tomato water out of it. Mm. So I just blended it and I ran it through like a micro mesh bag strainer just to get the tomato water. It's basically like the filtered juice. So it's clear. Yes. And then I took that tomato water and I froze it very hard into ice cubes. So I actually stir the martini with the tomato water ice cubes to get that chill and dilution instead of just using regular ice cubes. Wow. You really spared no expense, nor should you have. That's the next level stuff, Rico. Yeah, exactly. For Michelle's goodbye, we must, you know. She's a next level personality. Uh, Carrie Ha, (laughs) thanks so much. Yes, you're very welcome. Enjoy. There you have it, a cocktail we're calling the Michelle. Later we'll see how it tastes when garnished with our salty tears. Oh, adios, Michelle. Bye. And people, you'll find that recipe along with all our cocktail recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, comic Margaret Cho says her new stand-up show is just full of sunshine and rainbows. The bloated corpse of my existence is kind of being drained or not those things when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and our show is just getting started. Oh, yeah. Coming up, former Doobie brother and beloved yacht rocker Michael McDonald shares his dinner party playlist, and I learn about an old drink made from stale bread. He is not lying about that, ladies and I gentlemen. I am not lying about that. Lying is rude and impolite. Mm. Speaking of which, 
Let's learn some etiquette. What a great idea. Each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is actor, writer, and comedian Margaret Cho. For decades now, she has been fearlessly making audiences laugh about race, sex, and gender. Her ABC sitcom All American Girl was one of the first TV shows to prominently feature an all-Asian cast. She has earned five Grammy nominations and also an Emmy nomination for portraying Kim Jong-il on NBC's 30 Rock. Now she is heading out on tour with a new stand-up show called Fresh Off the Bloat. Bravo for that title, and Margaret, welcome. Thank you very much. I love a pun. Clearly. Puns are, I think, the highest form of humor. I agree. Why do people always say they're the lowest form of wit? I, I really... I think true. they're so funny, but and they're hard to come by. Yeah? They're hard to come by. How long did it take for you to come up with that well, <laughs> pun? Yeah, fresh off the bloat seems like it took a long time. It was That was kind of fast, because you go, oh, well, you know, if I want to do a show, because I want to talk about Asians in entertainment, and then I had my own... Asian American Family Show many years ago, and now we have mm. this very famous Asian American Family Show, Fresh Off the Boat. Of course. And so it's a meta title, Fresh mm. Off the Boat, because yeah. you know the show is also about fatness and alcoholism, and you know getting over a lot of different kinds of demons. Sure. So the bloated corpse of my existence <laughs> is is kind of being drained. Don't say corpse. You're so Cor- alive. Well, yeah, I'm alive. You can hear it. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> sure. It's, but it's about lancing that boil. Mm. <laughs> so I think that... It just gets brighter and brighter, this I love imagery. That, yeah. But I love to have a show about the, the very darkest parts of existence and, and bringing them back to the light, so it's good. You've also never uh, shied away from politics in your comedy. No. And we were wondering how you even write jokes about a president who's doing or saying something totally controversial almost every hour. I think that it's, well, there's no holds barred. I mean, with like Kathy Griffin holding up his decapitated head, which I love. It's mm. just TBT French Revolution, That's... as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's just a hashtag John the Baptist. Like, it's just fun. Yeah. But she got in trouble for it. Well, this is actually a question I wanted to ask. I think that it, one could have at one point said that the only rule in comedy was there are no rules. Yeah. And now it does feel like there are people like Kathy Griffin, Bill Maher, who are having, you know, potentially career altering backlashes mm-hmm. for pushing boundaries. Yeah. How does that affect the way you approach comedy? I don't know. I think, well, like with, with Kathy in particular, you know, she got fired from a lot of jobs. She, she lost a lot of work because of it. But I also yeah. love it when she gets fired because I'm next in line for whatever job she had. So You're going to be with Anderson on New Year's? Uh, you can watch me on New Year's Eve from Times wow. Square with Anderson Cooper. Amazing. So you're encouraging her like take it a step further. Just keep on taking it because I'm going to be I'm the scab. I'm a Kathy Griffin scab. But also, like with Bill that was a really weird circumstance where he's there's this weird I don't know what it is about white people. They really want to say the n-word and i'm like why i don't i just want to say as a white person i really have no compunction i have no i mean i'm like what is that kind of continually trying to test the boundaries of language or propriety but but certainly as a comedian you have some of those same tendencies we do all of us have those tendencies to want to play with fire and then we get burned and I'm certainly guilty of of think not the N word, but I think a lot of other things that that we're not really allowed to say in polite company and things that I have gotten in trouble for. Like I try to play with religion a lot, and people get really upset and scared. But has this kind of new climate has it made you shy away from certain topics, or maybe maybe curbed your... or maybe not? Maybe it makes you do things more. 
You know, and I was talking to Jerry Seinfeld about this kind of stuff. And he was like, you know, it flares up, but then it goes away just as quickly. It's not like any of these things last. I kind of disagree because, you know, if you're looking at something like what happened with Michael Richards, which is sort of the origin of where we sort of had social media outrage really kind of takes somebody out of their position that they were in. Yeah, he really has never recovered. No, and I think that is kind of like, well, the thing about Michael Richards, though, he has always (laughs) been like, every time I've seen him over the last 30 years of being in Hollywood, as Mm -hmm. I have, um, he's always been yelling at somebody and pointing their fing- his finger in their face. Every time I've seen him, he's mm. yelling and pointing his in finger. In any situation. In any. Yeah. Well, the first time was when um, Prince Charles came to Los Angeles for the premiere Whoa. of Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. And okay. so the etiquette with the royal family is if you're there with them, they have to be the first ones to leave. That's the protocol. Okay. Yeah. If the royal family's yeah. there... You're not getting your car out of the valet until they decide, (laughs) I'm getting my car now, and they hand in the ticket. Mm -hmm. Prince Charles was not about to leave because he was sitting there with Emma Thompson just laughing, having the best time. And and Michael Richards was outside screaming at the valet attendant because they couldn't open the valet until the prince was ready to leave. What does that mean then about him, you know, having lost his career potentially over <laughs> screaming? Are you saying it's like, well, what did you expect? That's all the guy does. I think that he just was screaming so much that it was inevitable that in the age now of mm. everybody having phones and recording it, that it was more likely that you would see an occasion where he was screaming. But that said, I think it was the racial component of what he was screaming. Right. As opposed to, it wasn't just he was ranting. I mean, because we did fight a war, so Prince Charles would have to wait in line. That's true. So I'm I'm kind of with him on that one. I mean, yeah. I mean, you do want to. If you're ready to leave, you don't want to wait till the prince is ready. To leave. It's that's totally crazy too. I want to ask you about something else you're you're talking about in your new stand-up set, which is your parents owned a gay bookstore in San Francisco during the height of the AIDS epidemic. They did. And some of your new material is about their reaction to that crisis. Yes. And I'm wondering why you decided to turn to that now and why centered it on your parents. Well, because it, I worked all through the 90s in um, AIDS organizations and and Mm. trying to get funding and trying to get the government to acknowledge that this was a really terrible problem and uh, that we needed to take the stigma off of it. So when you work with organizations like ACT UP and Coronation and all the stuff that I was doing in the 90s, then you kind of come away with feeling like, I really can't talk about the the crisis in the way that my disrespectful... (laughs) Parents did. I see. So so, so the comedy comes from you, the enlightened daughter, having to deal with actually fairly enlightened parents who just don't use very enlightened language. Yeah, but that that they actually said. Yeah. You know, Mm. so like my mother's point is everybody that have AIDS, they die, except for ugly people. Only ugly people survive AIDS because oh, no. nobody want to have the sex oh, my goodness. with the ugly people. Yeah. That's so, something you can't say ever. No. So, no, and I'm like... So you threw your parents under the bus. Well, that they all, they're used to. They live there. They're crushed. <laughs> They've been crushed. They're always crushed. Um, no, but they... I mean, and the thing is, is that that's how they remember the AIDS crisis. And it's not exactly the normal heart. Yeah, yeah. But... That's it's true for them. Comedian and LGBTQ activist Margaret Cho, she is on tour now with a new stand-up show called Fresh Off the Bloat. 
And mm. uh, some of you more astute listeners may have noticed she didn't actually answer any etiquette questions there in our etiquette segment. But do not fear, she'll be back to do just that and to provide a surprising noodle recipe later in the show. We totally let our listeners on, though. That was impolite of us. Yeah, I'm sure that's what you'll say. And now, the soundtrack, in which a fine musician DJs your dinner party. And here with song suggestions is Yacht Rock royalty Michael McDonald. In the 70s, he brought his one-of-a-kind soul vocals to the bands Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers. In the 80s, he launched a solo career with hits like I Keep Forgetting." Decades later, he is still going strong, collaborating with indie acts like Grizzly Bear and Thundercat. Here's Michael with a playlist that'll take you back to the soul of his youth. Hi, this is Michael McDonald. Glad to be here with all of you. The theme tonight is music we grew up with. Here we go with my dinner party soundtrack. Uh, My first song is a song by The Impressions, one of my favorite songs called I'm So Proud. Prettier than all the world. It was uh, Curtis Mayfield's group. Later on, he did a lot of the soundtrack music to Superfly movies. But starting out, he was with a group called The Impressions, a gospel group out of Chicago. You're only one fellow's girl. And I had forgotten this song for many years until a friend of mine brought it up. He mentioned how his parents, you know, when he was young, growing up, Thursday night was adult night. They would get the kids to bed, and they would have a late dinner downstairs by candlelight and then would play music. I'm so proud of being by He said he remembered as a kid sneaking with his brother to the top of the stairs and watching his parents dance to that song by candlelight. And, uh, you know, that was such an impression on him. The song always took on a new meaning to me, just having that story behind it. And I, I realized uh, so much of this music that we play, or that we remember and reminisce with, It was the expression of everyday people and how it makes it important to us all these years later. The second track I would choose is a fairly obscure track by Stevie Wonder from the Talking Book album, a great song entitled Maybe Your Baby. It's funky, (laughs) pretty funky track. As soon as the track starts, the clap and the bass and drums, it just really captures you. It just reaches out and grabs you. I feel like the world is turned on me. My dreams turn out just right in front of my face. I was growing up during the age of the British music invasion. And uh, in that time period, when I first listened to American R&B, I realized that that's pretty much what these British bands were trying to emulate. Taking out the guys that are any one singer who is emulated by almost every R&B singer there is today, it's Stevie Wonder. No one had treated Melody the way Stevie Wonder did. He had his signature kind of way of ending a phrase and falling off of a melody that was very much a kind of a jazzy influence, but he brought it into the pop R&B mainstream and made it his own. I 
I remember a friend of mine and I sitting and listening to songs in the key of life and we were listening to it. He goes, you know, 20 years from now, there'll be all kinds of different music, but we're probably never going to hear anything hipper than this. In that moment, I, I realized he was absolutely right. The third song I'd like to play is a beautiful ballad by Aretha Franklin. I believe a song written by her sister, a very beautiful song called Ain't No Way. What really impressed me most in the 70s, as far as R&B was, is how it seemed to kind of repossess its original roots and seemed to become more comfortable with its African-American heritage. And whereas in the early 60s, the records were tailored to a mainstream audience in the hopes of getting on pop mainstream radio. Ain't no way for me to love Right away, when I heard this first record by her, you really picked up on that fact that somehow she was really translating her gospel roots and it had that power that gospel music had that always somehow got diluted when those singers became pop artists. There was this, this kind of a tension, a building tension that, that was so beautiful in that ballad. Especially when you get to the bridge and she's in that impossibly high range. You could almost say that, gosh, that was just too high. But the way she pulled it off was just so spectacular. She killed it. Uh, my last track here is a song from my new album, Wide Open. It's a tune entitled, Find It In Your Heart. Pretty much a straight R&B dance groove. It's funny, in many ways it reminds me of growing up in the 70s. In terms of the lyric, it's that message that I always try to remind myself of when you live in this life. You have to frequently try to get out of your head and follow your heart a little more. A dinner party soundtrack from the smooth Michael McDonald. His new album, Wide Open, is out now. Now we're going to pivot into far darker territory. In 1992, Yancey Ford's brother William was killed by a white assailant. Then 10 years ago, Yancey started making a documentary about the shooting and about why a grand jury decided the case would never go to trial. It's called Strong Island, and it airs this weekend on Netflix. William was backpedaling, and he just kind of spun, I mean, with like the biggest eyeballs, who just looked at me, and he goes, Kev, he shot me. This is William's friend, Kevin, who was with William the night he was shot. I, remember, I just remember things just happening very fast at that point. I'm told, the police came. Next thing I know, they were walking out with the guy that, you know, shot him. And um, 
He never went in handcuffs, and that was kind of odd to me. At some point, a limousine pulled up, and I remember them walking this kid to the limousine, and I just stood there like, this is crazy that he's not in handcuffs, that he's going to get into a limo. Strong Island is more of a personal movie than a piece of journalism. Yancey turns the camera on himself, recalling how the killing shaped his identity as a black trans man and why his family still struggles with grief and a desire for justice. When I spoke with Yancey, I noted the film plays out like a family memoir featuring his brother's journals and family photos. And he does something unusual. He shows hands placing each photo into the frame. I asked him why. You know, I had hundreds of photos to choose from, and I had always brought them into the frame with my own two hands because they were originally meant to function as evidence of life, right? Mm. To stand in for the images of the crime scene or the autopsy photos and and other documents that I didn't have access to because the file is legally sealed. Mm. My producer, Jocelyn Barnes, she said to me one day, handle them with care. Don't handle them as evidence. When she said that, my handling of the photographs changed. The energy with which I interacted with them changed. But also these photographs are objects that live and breathe. And the last thing that I would ever do aesthetically is a pan and scan or an After Effects treatment because these photographs are, they're so dimensional, right? Mm -hmm. They've got so much texture and history that they just sort of communicate on a visceral level Mm. the love that's contained in each photograph. And the images themselves tell the story of the American dream. And I wonder, was that something you wanted to show from the outset of this film, or did that just emerge as you were examining your brother's life and death? It was something that emerged. It was really important to help people understand, you know, that my parents did in one fell swoop what most black families leaving the South during the Great Migration did in two. Most of those families moved from the South to the cities, and their kids would move from the cities to the suburbs. Yeah. My parents went Charleston, Brooklyn, Central Islip by the time I was born and my brother was five years old. And so it was important to give context to this place, which was them striving for the American dream, the quarter-acre plot, the split ranch house with the big backyard, in a neighborhood that's tidy and just happens to be all black. Yeah. But the, but the safety that they found there was a false safety. And that's what we discover when William is killed and essentially blamed for his own death. He sort of morphs into this person, you know, who's sort of larger than life and scary as hell. And when we get to that point in their story and in the story of my family, we realize that the suburbs are no safer than the city. The, in a way, the racism they escaped from the South was waiting for them in Central Islip, which you paint a pretty bleak picture of. And then... They go through this further disillusionment when a grand jury convenes to decide if your brother's case should go to trial. The thing about the film is that my mother and my parents were acutely aware of the function of the judicial system and the way that it was um, breaking this case down along racial lines, whether, you know, the police or the prosecutors or, or the grand jury were aware of it on a conscious level or not. My brother was mischaracterized from the size of his body and the frequency with which he went to the gym. There were all sorts of questions about how my brother was in the world as a person, right? Yeah. And it's not until we get to the coroner's report that we realize that he was essentially short, five feet, eight inches tall, and fat. Yeah. The coroner calls him obese. And that's the kind of thing that happens to black people over and over and over again. Your mother, towards the end of the movie, says something really moving. 
I did William a great disservice in raising him the way we did because we've always tried to teach you guys that you see character and not color. And many, many times I wonder how I could be so wrong. We don't hear your response to her in the movie, but what would you say to her? She was right. And I think that that we are learning and we are seeing that she was right. And we've held that tenant so dear and so sacred in, you know, the United States for so long, when the truth is that people lose their lives because of the color of their skin all the time. Your mother isn't the only person who feels remorse. Your remorse is uh, an emotional through line in this movie. Uh, You feel remorse for a phone call that William made to you shortly before this killing in which you kind of encouraged these macho antics that he'd been engaging in. And you also feel remorse that you didn't come out to him when you had the chance. Did making this film help you work through those feelings? I came to a new understanding of them, for sure. Like, I had had William's journals, but I hadn't really taken them seriously. I was like, oh, God, I don't want to read my older brother's love poems. Like, ugh, get that away from me, please. And that phone call was always this thing that was both a really precious thing to me and also really tinged with regret and wishing that my younger self had been smarter, but also really treasuring that moment where I feel, you know, that he really saw me, right? Because that's the kind of call that you would make to your to your little brother, mm-hmm. right? It's not actually the kind of call that you would make to your younger sister. So I feel like in a lot of ways that call was him in the absence of language, because remember, we're talking about the early 90s, right? The word transgender was not in our lexicon then. Mm-hmm. I think that he recognized the masculine tomboy presenting Yancey was much deeper than that. Mm. And, you know, it's funny, after the, the Q&A of the film where his friends were present, Kevin and Harvey um, both, both came to the Walter Reed screening in mm. New York City, um, he had actually told all of his friends that I was queer. Hmm. And I, did, I didn't know that until that evening. Those are the things that are real gifts, right? Mm. Those are the things that are real surprises emotionally for me. Like, you know, yeah. holy cow. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually did really know each other. Um, yeah. More than you really knew did. until you embarked on this film and created exactly. this, it sounds like. Exactly, more than I knew. And, and that really brings me a, a real sense of, um, of relief in a way. Yancey Ford, his documentary is called Strong Island. It premieres this weekend on Netflix. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but in just a minute, comic Margaret Cho returns and tells people who ask where she's from where they can go (laughs) when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, I learn how to turn bread and water into a trendy beverage. Magic. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps I'll start a church. But first, here with us again is comic Margaret Cho. Yes, we talked to her earlier in the show about her new stand-up act, Fresh Off the Bloat which she is touring around the country. In it, she takes on tough issues of race, gender, and her own struggles with substance abuse. And now she is going to take on our listeners' etiquette dilemmas. <laughs> we told them you were coming, Margaret. Okay. So are you, are you ready for these questions they've submitted? I'm ready. All right. Wonderful. All right, so here's one from Rooney, 
She's from Downey, California. Rooney says, as an Asian person, I get asked this question a lot. Where are you from? I normally just respond with, I'm from Los Angeles, but they always push a little further and ask, but where are your parents from? I am tired of explaining my ethnic background. How should I deal with this question? Well, I think that's really the answer. I am tired of dealing with this question. People always assume foreignness from Asian faces and Asian names. This idea that we're permanently foreign no matter where we're from. You know, I'm from San Francisco. I was born there. I was raised there. I really am an American in every sense of the word, yet my foreignness is always something that's sort of like highlighted. It's Mm. interesting. Although, what happens if you have this experience with someone who's also of Asian descent? Because I know that's something actually within the Korean community right. that you get a lot. It's like, are you are you from Korea or how many generations removed from being born in Korea are you? Yeah, I mean, that that's more of a valid question, I think, just because it's like, okay, well, we are all from this particular diaspora. You know? <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so we can actually like talk that about That word this. sounds like it immigrated here too. I know. So, so your suggestion is like a meta answer. It's like, you know what? I'm tired of answering that question. I mm-hmm. told you I'm from Los Angeles. Yeah. And you can give them the history lecture of how many times you've been asked that question and how mm-hmm. stupid it is to have to mm-hmm. continue to answer mm-hmm. it. And um, by the end of that, they'll just be like, you know what, forget it. Yeah. And then they'll learn something that this foreignness that is assumed about us is a racist trope and yeah. does not need to, you know, kind of exist in polite society. All right. Rooney from Downey. There you go. There's your suggestion. And I don't care where you're from other than Downey. Yep. California. Yeah. OK. This next question comes from Courtney. She's sent it via our website. Courtney writes, I'm an adult trying to learn Spanish. I'm not quite conversational, but want to practice with native speakers. Should I ask in Spanish if I can practice speaking with them prior to dropping my preschool level mastery of their language? Or is it just rude to ask them to take extra time and effort to be my unpaid educator? I think you you can practice. Everybody appreciates that. Like if you're learning a new language and you're going into an environment where it's their preferred method of communicating with each other. And if you're trying, I think people just appreciate it. I don't think it's ever rude. Yeah. I do the same thing because I have, I'm, my Korean is terrible. <laughs> and yet I try to communicate in Korean, in Koreatown. You know, I think it's charming. Even when you go to France or whatever, people have this long sort of standing idea that French people are rude. That's but- my experience in Paris was definitely that I tried my, you know, high school level French on them and was basically given the stink eye. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Maybe. no. That's a seductive of... eye. Maybe you, I think you just misread the eye, my friend. Maybe you misread oh. the eye. Maybe you can come to me for eye lessons. <laughs> I really, I, I had a good experience with that. All right. In Germany, too, I had a good experience. You also, that. though, I do think you have to be careful that you don't offend people in another way. I mean, Margaret is approaching this person assuming that the person speaks Spanish. Oh, yeah, yeah. And don't then... approach Margaret with your Korean questions. Because I'm not very good at speaking Korean, yeah. but I try. San Francisco. Yes. Keep trying. All right. We scrambled that enough. Courtney, somewhere in there is an answer. Indeed. Here is something from TM via our website. This is our last question. TM writes, my housemate and friend always talks while she eats, and I hate it. She also licks her fingers, which also drives me insane. If I see her preparing food, I leave the area until she's done eating. BTW, she is a highly educated and well-to-do person who has plenty of good manners, just not this one. What can I do? Oh, that's a tough one. I I think that um, 
yeah, sometimes things like that. So when you're like cohabitating with people that, and it's not necessarily a romantic situation. There's a kind of thing that roommates have where they really get on your nerves, and mm-hmm. it's just one of those things that you become hyper aware of Everything. certain behaviors. That's more the issue of like this intimacy that is not really about romantic intimacy. It's this kind of intimacy、mm. that's just about the closeness of another human being, which sometimes can be really hard. Yeah, you get no benefits from it except no, their rent. No, the rent, and you know, you can, it, it, it's also fun to have a roommate too. I just it's so weird. I'm. So old, but I it was in a roommate situation for the last fourteen、uh, months, and it was really strange, you really? know.、Mm. And my roommates were—they're very nice people, but they were also、um, some of them had been in prison, so they were all like making、um, prison like casserole things, where they were putting like ramen in like a bag and like smashing it, and then putting hot water. And I mean, I God bless them. For you know, really having an affinity for the food that they had when they were in prison, but like for me, I'm like this is so gross to me. Margaret, I'm sorry, we have to ask a follow up on that. So your roommates, how did you find them? Um, I was in rehab for a year,、uh, 14 months, which I talk、oh, yeah. about in the show a lot. Yeah, because sometimes you just need to go back and color. You know, I really needed to like retreat from society and、mm-hmm. get a coloring book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just color, and it was so good.、Mm-hmm. I really needed it. Yeah, but a lot of the people that were In my house, or coming in from prison, like a halfway home, like a halfway house. Well, they'd committed these crimes because of drug stuff, and then in prison, really loved to break up the ramen in the bag, and then. But、mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. I mean, that,、mm. there's so much sodium. There's so much sodium. <laughs> Since the bloat in the、yeah. title of your new show, the bloat of the show has to do with the sodium content. Yeah. Of all of my roommates' food, but I think you actually point to something more poignant for TM, which is you know that's such a small thing, chewing with your mouth open. Maybe just you know take it in stride. Yes, you could have had it way worse. Margaret、yes. Cho, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. Margaret Cho, she is currently touring her new comedy act, Fresh Off the Bloat. She's also working on a TV show about her time in rehab.、Mm. It's called Highland. Keep an eye out for that. Meanwhile, send us your etiquette issues, and we'll pose them to someone smart and famous. Got it. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Okay, pop quiz. All right. What do the brothers Karamazov, Anna Karenina, and the Cherry Orchard have in common? They're great works of Russian literature. Wrong. They talk about kvass. Okay, <laughs> but also. Yeah, yeah.、They're... The authors were Russian, but that's because、yes. kvass is a popular drink in Russia and all around Eastern Europe.、Ah. But until recently, there wasn't much of it available in the states. And kvass. Is it's a like, lacto fermented beverage made from stale rye bread? Ah, of course, right?、Mm. So to find out more, I spoke with Raphael Lyons, who makes this stuff at Honey's, a bar and winery in Brooklyn. Traditionally, kvass would be something that you would make from、uh, stale bread, and also because it's a folk drink, there's a huge variability for it. So like, there's nothing particularly authentic. About any version of it, so some people would put fruit in it. Some people would put things like coriander. We don't do that here. We just work with the bread. Is it really just you put bread in water that turns into something you can drink? Yes, I wish I knew that in college.、Uh, well, it's not alcoholic,、yeah. so you probably wouldn't have done it in college. Let me show you what it looks like. And okay, all right.、Drink. So we're looking at this huge blue vat.、So、oh my god. <laughs> 
That's kind of what my refrigerator looked like in college. So we're looking at, it looks like there's a liquid, there's a skin on top of it that's the color of sawdust and these bubbles that look like warts. Just say it, aliens. Okay, you're suggesting I taste this? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me try. It tastes like breadish. So this is what's called a pellicle, and it's basically a mass of lactobacillus. It's the same organism that wouldn't be making yogurt. It's a souring organism that takes sugars and turns them into acids. It's actually incredibly stable. So this isn't refrigerated. I could probably leave it here for a year and it'd be mm-hmm. fine. So this is a perf- kind of perfect drink if you're poor and you don't have refrigeration. And yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, keep in mind that water was not super healthy back then. So this is another way to clean your water. And people would drink a lot of this. So it was estimated people would drink a liter easily, yeah. a liter or two of this a day. So this means that they're drinking it with every meal. Well, can we go taste some? Sure. Oh, right. So we're going to uh, taste some of this, but I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm surprised that this is being put on ice. I, I guess I pictured it kind of like a British porter or something, where it should be served. Yeah. Uh, well, taste it. It's, it's not really like beer at all. It's like kind of like a tonic or refreshing drink. Wow, it tastes different than I expected. There is a mild beer taste to it. Meets kombucha, but then there's like a light sweetness to it, which I'm guessing is the honey. Don't, don't forget to smell it, because one of the things that's nice about uh, letting it sit for about a month is it develops these really interesting floral aromas. What floral notes are you, are you getting? Well, I'm a little stuffed up right now. <laughs> but you have a better sense of smell than our radio listeners. Yeah, there's a little coriander in there. There's, there's a little bit of uh, like malt. Is there alcohol in here? There is a small, there's like the amount of alcohol that you'd find like in kombucha. So very small amount. I mean, we have a lot of people who don't drink but aren't allergic to alcohol who will drink this. But you're going to have a hard time getting drunk on it. Have you had any Russians come in here and do a taste test? Oh, yeah, a bunch. Um, and what, what, what are their thoughts? They like it, but, you know, it's, there's a lot of layers of culture going on there. You know, because this thing happened in the Soviet Union when everything was industrialized. And one of the things that they did was they wanted to have, a, like, a national drink that could compete with Coca-Cola. So they took Kvass in name and basically produced this industrialized version, which is still, is like malt base. But if you tasted it, it basically tastes like a malt soda. It's, it doesn't really have a lot to do with this. Someone I work with is from Bratislava, and when she heard that I was coming to do this, she said, oh, Kvass, it's a non-alcoholic beer for children. Is this, is this training wheels for young beer drinkers? Is this what you would bring your, if you're going to a ball game with your child and you want to get them started? Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I, I can't comment on that except to say that I think a lot of adults drink it also. So since I've um, not made a Kvass pun, and I can't believe I haven't this entire time, can you, what are some great Kvass puns you've heard since you've well, been... There's our cocktail... Pain in the kvass. Uh, Keep going. Um, kvass is das? That's not really a pun. Well, it's German. Kvass is das. I was thinking, yeah. So thanks so much for um, showing us your kvass. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Raphael Lyons. Mm. He makes kvass at Honey's, which is a bar and winery in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Cool, but Brendan, uh, you remember earlier in the show when you wondered why puns are called the lowest form of wit? Mm-hmm, yeah. I think you just gave us our answer. <laughs> Dude, sir. That was Oscar Wilde level brilliant. You just, I stand behind it. You just set the pun cause back like a hundred years. I'm glad there's a pun cause. Folks, that concludes the Dinner Party download for this week. And you should know there's a lot more Dinner Party download that can be found only on our podcast. Subscribe to that 
via your favorite podcast app. This episode would not exist without senior producer Jackson Musker, along with associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, and our intern Emerald Douglas, Drew Jostad engineered. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road. A song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Shopa Ray is the songwriter and voice behind the blues punk band called Shopa Ray. I see what she did there. Yep, and she does it again. Here's a song off of her forthcoming album. It's called Shopa Ray Has a Heart Full of Dirt. Wow. Bon appetit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Good day, gentlemen. I'm chair of the Oscar Wilde Society. This is a cease and desist order. You are legally forbidden to mention his name in the presence of bad puns again. Whoa. Yeah. That was pretty wild. Dude. Enough!